Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be. We have a lot of ground to cover this morning. So Mark chapter 1, verse 21. Let's stand as we read God's word. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. So happy to see you this morning. Let's see what God's word says. The Holy Spirit says today through John Mark. And they, Jesus and the disciples, went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered a synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was uh, in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now turn to verse 40. It'll be on the screen as well. And the leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. You may be seated. How many of you struggle with authority. <laughs> I fought the law, but the law won, right? You know, most people struggle with authority. There is a little rebel inside of all of us that finds its roots in the Garden of Eden. We don't want to be told what to do. It starts with God, our parents, school, our teachers, work, our bosses, the government, politicians, the church, and other people who are in positions of authority. We want to fight against the man. We don't want anyone to tread on us. And the truth is, is that we should resist illegitimate authority. We should resist abusive authority. And many of you have been abused by people in authority, they've abused their authority in your life and they've caused you a lot of trauma and a lot of damage. But when it comes to Jesus, most people don't mind Jesus in a manger. They, they don't even mind Jesus that came out of a tomb. 
But what they struggle with is submitting to Jesus as the Lord and Savior of their life. They struggle with submitting to his authority. And, and so we will say words that kind of tend to think that we dumb down his authority. We, we, we say like, will you accept Jesus into your heart as if Jesus needs our acceptance? Or will you make him your Lord? Or will you give him authority? And here's what you gotta understand. Jesus doesn't need us to give him authority over anything. He already has it. And there's not one square inch of this universe that Jesus doesn't have full authority over. Because where he may not rule, he overrules. And when you, some of you hear this, you say, well, okay, so now we have some sort of supernatural, all-powerful being that has all authority. Well, that scares some of us. But the truth is this, we need not be afraid because he is good. And we're going to see that this morning. You know, if, if the book of Mark were a movie, it would be an action thriller. The word immediately is found 50 times in the New Testament. And of those 50 times, 41 are found in the gospel of Mark. Mark is written for people with ADHD. <laughs> it is fast paced. It is quick moving. And so we just went from the seashore of Galilee to now the synagogue in Capernaum on a Sabbath day. And what Mark is going to do from verses 21 through the end of chapter one is he's going to give us a snapshot of what a typical day or couple of days would look like in the life of Jesus. If these verses were a television show, it would be 24. But instead of Jack Bauer, we have Jesus Christ who can truly save the world. And what we see in these stories are, is this, because we're going to see stories of tremendous life transformation. What we're going to see is that in, in these stories in Jesus's ministry, they prove to us that Jesus has complete and compassionate authority over everything. So let's walk through this. We have a lot of ground to cover. Number one, let's see here that Jesus has complete authority. Verse 21, they went into Capernaum. And in about three days, uh, me and 53 others will be going to the town of Capernaum. That's a word is Capernaum, which is the hometown of Nahum the prophet. It was the hometown of Peter, uh, and it was Jesus's adopted hometown. It's a large town, around 10,000 people, perhaps in Capernaum or in the surrounding little area of Capernaum. It was large enough for a Roman garrison of soldiers. And the Roman soldier, the commander of the garrison, according to Luke chapter 7, was actually friendly with the Jewish population and even helped them build their synagogue. The city of Capernaum uh, was a crossroads of two major highways, the, the Via Maris, which is the way of the sea, and the, the King's Highway. It was this cross-section, this intersection, which housed so many people from all over the Roman Empire. It was a great trade route. A lot of great trade came out and was exported, either going down the Via Maris, the, the way of the sea, which would go uh, to Caesarea, or, or it would go into the other parts of uh, the Roman Empire through different rounds. They go to a synagogue. The best way to kind of understand what a synagogue was, is like a church building. 
It came out of the exile period in, in 586 BC. It was established for those Jews who could not go to the temple. The temple was destroyed. And so every village that had 10 or more Jewish males over the age of 13, those 10 men would establish a synagogue. And the synagogue would serve as the axis of the community. It would be a, a place, a community center for the people. It would be an assembly hall on the Sabbath. Next to it would often be a Bet Talmud, which is a school. And, and, and it would be on the Sabbath day that people would congregate in the synagogue. In, in most well-to-do synagogues, large synagogues, the men would sit all at the bottom and the women, if there was a balcony, would sit at the top. I know in Capernaum that there was a lower room and an upper chamber where the women would be and the men would be at the bottom. And so the Sabbath day started at 6 p.m. on Friday and ended 6 p.m. on Saturday. And so this community center, this synagogue would, would not have a pastor. It would have someone called the ruler of the synagogue. And the ruler of the synagogue wasn't a preacher. Uh, he was more like a librarian and a custodian. Often they would live next door to the synagogue, but they were completely unpaid volunteers. But their responsibility was to get a teacher that day. And so uh, most of the time when there wasn't someone that came in from out of town, a guest rabbi, then someone in the congregation would read Torah, maybe expound on it and sit down. Well, people really wanted uh, great visiting rabbis or scribes to come in and, and speak to them. And so Jesus has now come into this synagogue in Capernaum. And the Bible says in verse 22 that they were astonished at his teaching. Uh, the synagogue service had four parts. The first part would be the opening prayer. Uh, then there would be the reading of Torah. Uh, then there would be the explanation or the homily, the sermon uh, about Torah. Uh, and then there would be the benediction, the blessing over the people. And, and as you read the synagogue worship structure, the focus of the time of gathering was on the message of the word of God and the message from the messenger. And so just as we typically focus in on the message, so that kind of has come through the corridors of history. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus taught. We, we don't know the exact content, but, but we do know that chapter one, verse 15 says that at the very least, he said this, that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. But, but what made this so impactful isn't just the message, but it was how he did it. They, they never heard anyone teach like Jesus. And, and so the, Mark tells us that, the, that what the people were saying is that Jesus taught as one who had authority, or, or the Greek word is exousia. Let's just say that together, exousia. All right, now you've said Greek. Good job. Authority. Jesus taught as one who had exousia, not as the scribes. And so here is now the first time we're contrasting Jesus and the scribes. And what we're going to find all throughout Mark's gospel is that the scribes tend to be an enemy of, to Jesus. Now, who were the scribes? Well, the scribes were the experts in the law. Uh, they were professors. Uh, they were uh, teachers. Uh, they were lawyers. And so they were the Morgan and Morgan of their day. It's kind of like Shammai and Shammai. And so what they would do is, <laughs> uh, 
what they would do is that they would expound on the 613 laws of the Torah, and then they would give what they interpreted. And so their interpretation would be binding law. It would be known as second law. And so the people of that day (laughs) depended on the scribes to tell them what the Torah said and what the Torah meant. And so therefore, these scribes were esteemed and honored. Many of them were rabbis, which the word rabbi means great ones. And and so the, the people are listening and they're saying, this guy is different than those guys. Why is it? Because the scribes' authority was derivative. That is, it came from somewhere else. Their messages, when they would get up and expound on whatever the the, the Torah said, was just an interpretation uh, that would be a string of quotations. And so it would be a, a string of quotations of what others have said. So they would get up, they would read the text, and then they'd say, well, Rabbi Gamaliel says this, and Rabbi Shemaiah says that, and Rabbi Eliezer says this. And so their whole sermon was one string commentary research paper, and, and, and they really uh, depended on others for their substance. And so they didn't quote themselves. They quoted others. They, they had no ability to tell you what they thought. Matter of fact, if you were to say, well, what do you think? Well, we don't know, but here's what this guy said. So when they were here, could you imagine hearing a long message that all it was was just some run-on of different quotations? Well, that's, that's what the scribes were doing, and I'm sure it wasn't very exciting. Jesus comes in, and his authority is different. His authority isn't derivative. His authority is direct because he has exousia. He, that that word exousia, we actually get our word author from. The word exousia means out of the original stuff. And so Jesus' teaching was not dependent on what the rabbi said. He didn't have to quote another rabbi. He didn't have to clarify what the people already knew. Why? Because Jesus himself was the author of Torah. He was the interpretation of Torah. And so what amazed people at synagogue that day is that they never heard anyone speak with this kind of exousia because this guy spoke as if he wrote the Torah himself. And guess what? He did. (laughs) And so after Jesus has a great sermon, the invitation is given. And there was a man who had an unclean spirit. Well, he was demon-possessed. Now, could you imagine the scene? Jesus just preaches the sermon, and there comes a demon-possessed man. I remember one time I was finishing preaching, and I had a drunk man come to me. (laughs) That was the scene. And so this man convulses and gyrates and does all these different things, foaming at the mouth, probably doesn't have much clothes on, probably has cuts all over his body. And and, and there was just a scene. Now, I want you to note here that some will kind of say, well, this was maybe schizophrenia, some sort of mental disease, mental illness. But the Bible is very clear. This isn't a mental disorder. Sadly, there are a lot of struggles that people have in mental health. But this is not a mental health issue. This is demonic. Demon possession is the satanic counterfeit for being indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So if you are a born-again, spirit-filled believer, you cannot be possessed by the devil. The Holy Spirit indwells believers, making them more human, bringing life. But Satan and demons enter to do three things, to steal, kill, and to destroy. Now, now I want, at the very least, for you to understand, because sometimes in our modern, western, sophisticated, uh, uber-intelligent the mindset that we're so educated, many of us are educated beyond our intelligence, is I want you to understand something that's a real reality. Demons are real. And in Jesus' day, there was an intensification of demons. But even in our day, there's strong demonic activity. If you don't believe me, just watch television. 
Now, in animist countries, certain countries in Africa and Asia and other animists where, where, where there are a lot of superstition and a lot of just animist kind of thinking, there, there seems to be more what would seem to be pronounced demonic activity. Uh, I was with uh, one of our workers uh, over in the Middle East, and he lived in Zimbabwe for a while. And in this little village in Zimbabwe, uh, the, 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 the town and the new believers were really struggling because there was a witch uh, who was just causing all kinds of havoc. And many of them believed that she uh, was demon-possessed. And so now this is a story. You can believe it or not. You can believe it or not. So they were having a prayer meeting, praying specifically for the demonic oppression that was going on in the village. I mean, there was some kinds of just weird, crazy things happening, and they were specifically praying for this witch. And they said, again, I, this is, I'm just telling you what I've told. I didn't write the mail. I'm just delivering the mail. Here's what they said. We were having an all-night prayer visual, praying that God would release us from this demonic oppression that was going on in our village. And as they were praying, they heard a thud on the roof of the church. They come outside and they see this witch lady had fell. They said she was flying over the church. And when the prayers hit her, I guess it intercepted her and she fell down. <laughs> she was no longer a witch after that. Now, again, you, you don't have to believe me. I'm not, I, I, this person has no reason to make it up. But what we're seeing, and you say, well, how can we? We're so sophisticated. It's th that Satan's strategy of demonic activity isn't those type of things. You know what Satan's strategy for dem demonic activity is in America? It's, it's science and relativism, consumerism, and politics. You don't think Satan's involved in politics? Yeah. But here's what you notice, because I don't want nasty emails from this, but here's what I want you to notice, <laughs> is that the demon came to church. Did you know that demons come to church more than you do? And the demon comes to church and he screeks, what have you to do with us? And, and, and the demons knew who Jesus was. They knew that Jesus had invaded their territory. They knew that their days were numbered, that, that they were under attack because their rightful king has come to reclaim what has been lost. See, uh, John says that the reason that the Son of God has appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The demon says, I know who you are, the Holy One of Israel. Now, some scholars think that here the demon was trying to do some sort of mind trick on Jesus, like some sort of Jedi mind trick, but didn't work clearly. But what we note here is that the second voice in Mark's gospel who tells us who Jesus is after God the Father is a demon at church. As a matter of fact, all in Mark's gospel, the demons will use very strong theological language to describe who Jesus is. They will call him the son of the most high, the son of God, Lord, teacher, the son of David and master. The demons knew who Jesus is and they have better theology than most of us do. And so Jesus is hearing this demon screech out at church. And in verse 25, the Bible says that Jesus rebuked the demon. That word rebuked is the same word that Jesus uh, did when he stood on the boat and calmed and rebuked the seas and the wind. And he said, be silent. In the Allen version, it's shut up. No spell, no incantation. 
And what, is the, what happens? The demon's powerless. The unclean spirit convulses, shrieks, comes out, and it obeys Jesus. Not a word. The demon obeys better than your dog, better than your kid. And immediately the, the demon shuts its mouth and doesn't say a word. Now, this was a, this had to have been a scene at church. Could you imagine? But what made this really more big is that exorcisms in that day were quite rare. As a matter of fact, they didn't really happen at all or very much. Even though in Jesus' day there was high amounts of demonic activity, people were trying to figure out solutions. And so if there's something strange in the neighborhood, who are you going to call? So you had all kinds of ghostbusters out there and they would, they would write different books of incantations and spells. These were, these were mystical Jewish uh, exorcists. And, and as you read their writings in a book called The Torbit, uh, they would have different ways to get rid of demons. And so uh, one is you could invoke the name of a higher authority. And so many of them, believe it or not, would invoke the name of Solomon. They would say, in the name of Solomon, come out. You know, in the name of Isaiah, the prophet, come out. They would do different rituals. Here's some of the rituals that they would do to get rid of demons. One is they would take some dung, put it to the person's nose to kind of make the demon want to leave, to drive the demon out. It was a smelly proposition. Others, they would pretty much waterboard to try to drown the demon out. The, the, the other thing that was kind of, that was sad is that they would drill a hole in the person's head. And there's all kinds of skulls that have been uncovered over the, over the years that date back to the first century of, of holes that were dr drilled in people's heads. And here's what we know is that this type of exorcism was common practice in Jesus's day, but it didn't really work. Well, Jesus doesn't do any of that. He just says a word. And so verse 27, the crowd was amazed. They're, they're like, what is this? <laughs> a new teaching? with authority. Like he didn't just say cool stuff. He did great stuff. They were astonished. That word astonished or amazed is found all throughout Mark's gospel because no one would have ever saw what Jesus did or heard what Jesus did and thought it was anything short of amazing. Jesus in this moment blew everyone's categories away. And, and the, all of that I'm telling you is a setup for all the different stories as we look ahead in the book of Mark. And so verse 28, the Bible says that his fame spread everywhere. This became viral on TikTok. Could you imagine all the real views that they got just seeing, hey, Jesus here, everybody got their iPhones out in that moment. What's Jesus gonna do? They film him there and they were absolutely amazed at what took place in the synagogue. But hear me out. Amazement is not the same thing as faith. See, if you would have heard Jesus that day or saw Jesus that day, there was no way you could be indifferent to Jesus. I mean, that's pretty amazing. The guy may be a little crazy, but he's definitely pretty awesome. Here's what I found. You, don't, you can acknowledge Jesus's authority, but yet not live like it. I mean, these people acknowledge that Jesus is different. They're amazed at him. They, they probably acknowledge that he has some sort of authority. I mean, they say it twice. He has exousia. He has authority. A lot of people acknowledge Jesus has authority, but they don't obey it. I mean, think about this. When do we see our biggest crowds in church? Christmas and Easter. These are Christers. Our CEOs, Christmas, Easter only folks. 
And that's none of you, right? None of you. These people in our world on Christmas, on Easter, they'll acknowledge the baby in the manger. They got no problem with little sweet baby Jesus. They have no problem with Jesus coming out of a tomb, but they live 363 days of their year as if Jesus has absolutely no authority over their life at all. Do you know the most expensive Christmas tree in the world is in Abu Dhabi? In the Emirate Palace Hotel, there is an enormous Christmas tree that cost last year was $11.4 million to put up. It wasn't the tree that cost that much. It's because it was decorated with gold bars, Rolex watches, and diamond earrings. Well, the nation of Abu Dhabi is a devout Muslim country. And if you convert to Christianity, if you call Jesus Lord and King and God, they could put you in jail. They definitely will persecute you. And in some remote places will kill you for converting. And yet this symbol, this Christmas symbol, this symbol of, even though it's, you know, secular, but still has been interposed into Christianity. This Christian symbol is prominently on display in December. What does it tell us? That people don't mind Jesus as a baby. They don't mind Jesus as a prophet, but they will not trust or surrender to him as Lord. But here's what you got to understand. As I said earlier, whether or not you want to submit to him and his authority, he still has complete authority. There's nothing you can do that can diminish it, take it away. You didn't elect him. You can't impeach him. You can't kill him because he is risen from the dead. Now, some of you are scared. Okay, so we have this just God man who came to this earth, has complete authority. That would be scary if it not, were not for this fact that it's compassionate authority. Now, we got a lot of stuff to walk through. All right, so here's this big scene. Just happened in church, verse 29, immediately. Again, this word, immediately, immediately, immediately. They left the synagogue and entered into the house of Simon. This was now going to be the base of operations for Jesus' ministry. Both archaeology and church history tell us that Peter's house was a stone throw away from the synagogue. So literally right across the street. Peter's house would have been a family complex. Uh, a lot of scholars believe that there was about four homes that were kind of built around each other with one open air complex in the middle that connected them. There would be multiple, maybe levels, one or two stories, or maybe even three stories tall. And some scholars say that in these housing units, these would all be family members. There would be about 60 people living together. Could you imagine? I couldn't. They had just came in from church. They were expecting fried chicken and potato salad. But word comes to Jesus that Peter, his mother-in-law, has a fever. Now you say, well, fever, we'll just give her a Benadryl, give her, or give her ibuprofen and call it a day. But they didn't have ibuprofen in that day. Fevers in that day were life-threatening. The rabbis actually regarded fever as a heavenly fire that only God could put out. Jesus hears of Peter's mother-in-law, which tells you that Peter was married so the first pope was married, in case you're wondering. That was a joke. <laughs> he picks her up. The fever leaves her. She comes down, starts cooking fried chicken. That's in the Allen version, okay? A lot of pastors have told really horrible jokes, just like I did, on that particular text. What does it mean she went to serve? 
It says she's completely restored to full health. She's back to normal. Verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him, Jesus, all who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered together at the door. Word has spread. Now, why did they wait till sundown? The reason they came at sundown is because Sabbath ended at 6 p.m. or sundown on Saturday, so people can now get out the house. There was now a tidal wave. Everybody and their mama in town came to Peter's door, and they were enthusiastic about their need to see Jesus. They came with different conditions. So the Bible says here that Jesus healed them. Verse 34, he healed many who were sick with various diseases, casting out demons and and, and he wouldn't permit the demons to speak because they knew him. People came with all kinds of issues. We had George who has gout. Trudy who has ingrown toenail. Sally is oppressed by the devil. George has got a heart condition. Bill's got a stomach problem. They don't come in big ways of proving themselves. They just come to Jesus. He heals them. No spells, no incantations, no rituals. He, he has authority, but he has compassionate authority because it's one thing to have authority and no compassion. It's another thing to have compassion and no authority. Jesus had both. And he healed hundreds of people, maybe even thousands of people. Here's one thing I want you to note. All of this took place in Peter's home. Just a side note. Your home is a great place to do ministry. In our American culture, where our homes are our castles, often we don't want any foreign invaders. But some of the best ministry happens at home. First with your family. Second with your neighbors and friends. And you're going to see ministry happening in the home, all throughout the Gospels. And so Jesus is at a late night. He's healing people. People are coming from everywhere. Verse 35, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. After one of the biggest, busiest days of Jesus' ministry, Jesus got up extra early to spend quiet time with his Father. One of the things you're going to note, we're going to track this all throughout the Gospel, is that the busier that Jesus got, the more time he took to pray. We are so addicted to being busy and to work and to technology and to entertainment. Normally when we're worn out, we want to binge watch on Netflix and eat a lot of bad food. But the kingdom of God does not advance by binge watching Netflix or eating Krispy Kreme donuts. The kingdom of God advances when we spend time with our Father in prayer. Our church will not go any farther than through our prayer. And so we can have great programs, we can have great gimmicks, we can have great things, but if we are not praying, if we're not a praying church, we can't expect the power of God to be here. So Jesus went to go pray, verse 36, and Simon, this is Peter, and those who were with him searched for him. Where's Jesus? They were looking for Waldo, and there's Jesus. And they found him, verse 37, and when they find Jesus, it's almost as if they're scolding Jesus. Everyone's looking for you. Where are you at? Jesus, we got a big plan. We got a big day of ministry. Play. I mean, we, we got something going on here. I mean, I, I've called some folks in Bethsaida, my cousins. I, I, I know a lady down in Migdal. She's got a bad case of shingles. 
They're on their way. Where are you? Jesus looks at him and said, we got to move on. We got to move on. I'm sure they're like, Jesus, you're not making the most of this moment. I mean, we are popular. Jesus says, no, I didn't come here to heal people physically. I came here to preach the gospel. And here's what I want you to learn from that little point there is that miracles are not the point of Jesus's ministry. Miracles are confirming signs that the message of Jesus is true. All it's pointing us to is that Jesus has authority. And so when it comes to Jesus's disciples, we don't set Jesus's agenda. Jesus sets our agenda. And so now Jesus is going out and he's preaching and he's casting out demons. He's on this great crusade all around uh, Galilee. And while he's out preaching, a leper came to him, not a leopard, but a leper. We're not really familiar with leprosy. Maybe you've heard of leprosy, but there was no disease feared worse than leprosy in Jesus's day. It would start with a sore on your body. Eventually it would make your skin turn white. Your hair would fall out. You would become deformed. You would look like a monster and eventually you would die. Josephus, the Jewish historian said that a leper was treated like a dead man. They'd be ostracized from society. It was illegal to greet a leper. The leper had to stay 100 feet from people. And if they saw someone, they'd have to yell out, unclean. It was social distancing on steroids. No one ever touched a leper. People would carry rocks in their pockets just in case they saw a leper. And so this man and all lepers felt cursed by God, excluded from society, isolated from their family. So this man, Jesus uh, he comes in to see Jesus. He begs that Jesus would heal him. Now, contextually, someone maybe believe that he approaches Jesus at the synagogue, which would have been totally forbidden. But he's such in desperate conditions. He says, make me clean. Notice he doesn't say, make me feel better. Doesn't say, notice that he says, take this disease away. He says, he's obviously Jewish. He says, make me clean. Why would he say to Jesus, make me clean? Because he, in his mind, thought his biggest problem was that he was unclean before God and unclean before others. Notice that this man knew that Jesus could heal him because he recognized his exousia, but he didn't know that Jesus would heal him. He says, if you would so now in this moment, we have to all wonder, what would Jesus do? This guy was at the mercy of Jesus. Had Jesus not responded to this man, this man could have been stoned to death for approaching a rabbi. And yet the Bible says that Jesus was moved with pity. And he touches him. That would have been unthinkable. It would be like sharing a needle with a person that has AIDS. This man is so used to people running from him, not anyone walking towards him. Everyone is seeing Jesus here, and, and this guy's probably expecting a word from Jesus. He never would have thought he would have got a touch from Jesus. See, when Jesus delivered people from the demons, he spoke the word, but when Jesus comes to the leper, he touches him. The fear was is that if you touched a leper, you would get leprosy yourself. That rabbis, they would say, if you touched a leper, you would become unclean. But, but notice here, instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the man becomes clean. This man's uncleanliness did not taint or tarnish Jesus's cleanliness. But matter of fact, it was the opposite. Jesus's cleanliness changed this man's filthiness. He was made clean. 
The word there, clean, is, is zestfully clean. <laughs> Not just free from leprosy, but, but literally the idea is that he's restored back to what he used to be. He's gone back to normal. This is a full miracle. This man's nightmare was over. The pain of the disease that ravaged his body and isolated his soul was gone. He can now go back home. He can go back to work. He can live a normal life. And no longer would he feel cursed by God. He was clean. And so verse 43, notice what happens. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. Jesus says, go straight to the priest. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Straight to the priest. Say nothing to no one. Why? Number one, Jesus was a preacher, not a healer. He did not want everybody to just gather around him. And also, he didn't want to cause more trouble that would stir up the religious elite that would speed up the timetable for his crucifixion. It wasn't his time yet. So Jesus says, listen, don't just go straight to the priest. Second, we notice here is to obey Scripture. Leviticus chapter 14 tells us that if you have been healed from leprosy, nobody was unless it was a miracle. You had to be pronounced ritually clean by the priest so that you could be restored to the community. And so if you've been healed from this disease, you were to go to the priest and according to the law, you were to take two birds. One bird, the priest would sacrifice and the other, the priest would put over a bowl of clean water and release. For those of you theologians in the room, one picture is propitiation, the other one expiation. And so after the priest declared you clean, you're supposed to then take a bath and shave your entire body. And you would come out looking like a baby as if you were born again. Y'all trekking with me? But Jesus also had a plan. This plan was to use this man's testimony for the priest. See, you don't get a testimony without a test. And this man's test was leprosy and it ravaged his life and caused hell to his body. And now he was clean. He was fresh and clean. And the priest knew it's impossible. The rabbis and Jesus said this, it's easier to raise the dead than heal a leper. And this guy, when they asked him, who did it? Jesus of Nazareth. Now let's end with this. Stay with me. Don't go to sleep. Jesus has just healed this man with authority, loving authority. And he says, don't tell anybody. But what does a guy do? Verse 45, he's a Baptist. He doesn't listen to anybody. But he went out and began to talk freely. Baptists love to run their mouth. And spread the news. Jesus shut the demons up with a word. The disease is left in an instant. But this healed man didn't obey Jesus. 
Jesus told this man to tell no one. He told everyone. One preacher says we do the opposite. Jesus tells us to tell everybody. We tell nobody. <laughs> what do you think Jesus would do? I mean, <laughs> like if, if I were Jesus, it's a good thing I'm not. I would have given the guy's leprosy back. <laughs> right? No soup for you. <laughs> yeah. Or he could have just sent them to hell with the demons. I mean, he had authority to do that, right? He took it away. He can give it back. I brought you into the world. I can take you out. But Jesus didn't do that. He doesn't do that. And this guy's joyful disobedience had consequences. And notice what these consequences were. That Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but went out into desolate places. See, Jesus couldn't go out anymore because now everybody knows, well, he not only casts out demons, but he heals lepers. And nobody ever heals a leper. So now he's going to have all these lepers following him and all these people. He couldn't, he had to go out into the wilderness. Whereas this former leper can now go back to town and go in freely and go into his house because he's clean. And what you see here is this, oh, stay with me, is if you really read this, you see that they traded places. The leper went back home with family and friends and Jesus goes to a lonely, desolate place. The leper could walk freely in town and Jesus had to hide from people. Oh, what a compassionate God who has the authority right now to send all of us to hell, but he doesn't. See, the reason that Jesus could cleanse and heal us is because he took our place. He took our sin and our sorrow and he made it his very own. And when Jesus was crucified, he became unclean so that we could become clean. He took our sickness so that he can make us well. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. See, Jesus has complete authority. We don't give him authority. We don't take away any of his authority. He has authority over the demons of hell, disease, disaster, disability, death. What seems and what is impossible for us is easy for him. Nothing can stop him. He has no rivals. He has no equals. And he's got a heart full of compassion for you. You say, I can't submit to an abusive authority figure. I get that. Well, Jesus isn't abusive of his authority. He's compassionate. Will you come to him? Will you submit to his authority? Because whether you do or not, he still has authority. And if there's something that is bothering you, if there's something that's picking on you, if there's something that's causing you distress, give it to Jesus. He's got authority. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I pray God today that we would submit to your authority and that we would see that you are good. You are the king. And Lord, 
you are greater than the hater. You are greater than our sin. You are greater than the devil. And you are greater than the great. And so, Lord, today we submit to your compassionate authority. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. I normally don't direct you in worship. We're about to sing two songs or a song here that's about Jesus. I can't imagine you just sitting there like this. Because we didn't come here to worship ourselves. We didn't come here to worship our neighbor. We came here to worship King Jesus. So let's sing out and shout out and not give out for all he has done. Let's go. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.